All right. Hey, thank you so much, worship team. Good to see you guys again here this morning. And by the way, if you want to continue to see how our worship team grows and is expanding their own musical repertoire, I'd encourage you to consider coming to a worship service we call Lifted. Happens, I believe it's on June 8th. It's a Wednesday night here, a special service. A great time here that night. So just kind of put that in the back of your brain, all right? Hey, thanks for making it again this morning. Really glad to see all of you. And uh, we are in a series that we're calling To Die For. It is a series in which we're really kind of raising up the faith again and saying this faith that Christians have believed for a long time is not just one that is Sunday-altering, but should be life-altering. In fact, people, generations upon generation upon generation of people have died for, bled for the faith that sometimes we so coolly take for granted. People have been homeless for, persecuted for, and we, and I speak of myself personally, am sometimes just guilty of hey, whatever, it's Sunday morning time to roll out of bed, and here we go, sing a few songs, endure a message perhaps, maybe get a few things out of it and go on with the week. Somewhere along the line, we need to step back and say, we have been handed, if you are a Christian, we have been handed a faith that people have said, I'm going to die for this. This is life-altering. All right, so this is, this is the deal. This is the series to die for. Our compass, kind of our direction for this, is the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. And the author to the book of Hebrews is writing to a people who are really struggling with the difficulty of life. They're, they're worn down, right? They're beaten down. They've been persecuted, and they're really asking the question, come on, is, is it worth it? I mean, is, is it really worth it? And is Jesus really going to ever come back? And I know those promises, you know, he said these things, but boy, I don't really know if this is true. And so the author to Hebrews, we don't even know who it is, but has a pastoral tone to him, is writing, encouraging the people to come on, come on, come on. Keep fighting for what we know is true. The way that I'm walking us through this series is actually not chapter by chapter, but more thematically or movement by movement. Okay, And what I see in the book of Hebrews is at least three big movements at a macro level. The first movement is the author trying to help the people understand who is Jesus. And the first thing was Jesus is fully God, like Christians believe he's full, full on God. And he's also fully human. And there's implications for that. We talked about that at the beginning. The second movement we just concluded last week is a movement about faith. What is it? And we said that the Christian faith centers on Christ, and the the Christian faith is one that um, is active despite the silence of God. That is not just something you have in your brain, but something we work out. And despite God being silent, Christians always believe. Like That is the legacy that we've been handed. If you're a Christian, you just believe. Does it it make sense? No. Is it hard? Yes. Is there going to be an answer? I don't know. Might things get worse? Yes. What should I do if I'm a Christian? Want an answer? Believe. That's what Christians do. That's the legacy of the faith that we've been handed. That Christianity centers on Christ, not that I have more good than bad in my life, and not that the church is awesome, not that people in leadership are awesome, but my faith centers on Jesus Christ. That's what Christians believe, right? So that's movement two. Part two is about the nature of faith. Now, we're into movement three, all right, part three, beginning this morning, part three of this 10-part series, and really the question around which I want to circle our thoughts this morning is this question of, if this is true, right, that Jesus is fully God and man, and faith is this active peace, and I don't give up no matter what, I'm resolute in my faith, and Christians believe, that's great. But here's the question that people have asked all the time, and if you want to know the answer to this question, here you go. Here's the question, how does one draw near to God? Like, if I want to draw near 
to the God that you're talking about, if I want to draw near to this Jesus, okay, if I want to draw near to a Jesus who's fully God and fully man, and if I want to draw near in my faith to him, how does one go about doing that? What should I do? Just be more resolute? Should I, should I be here every Sunday? Is that what I should, should do? I mean, should I tune into the right radio stations and read a devotional book every morning that lasts at least five minutes or maybe 15, maybe an hour is the right answer. I don't know. What, what should I do? How does one actually draw near to God? Like if that's kind of the appeal or the pull of this thing, how does one do this? Now, if you think about it this way, before we think about how to draw near to God, think about for a minute how you draw near to anybody or anything. If you're old enough to be dating, uh, and don't raise your hand if you're not sure if you're old enough to be dating, okay? Parents might get on that a little bit, all right. But if you're old enough to be dating, and you're kind of thinking about the opposite sex, if you ever had to think about, how do I draw near to someone I'm interested in? Right? How do, I'm interested in her, or I'm interested in him. How can I get them to notice me? Well, what do we do? Of course, what we do is we, we put on our, our best. We put, make a good impression, if we can. Put our best foot forward and try to do the very best we can to impress somebody that we want to impress. If I want to draw near to you in that sense, I want you to be at least somewhat impressed by something about me. And if my impression on you is not that you're impressed by me, then we have a problem. I have a problem because I want you to be impressed by me. Same thing for work. If I want my boss to be impressed by me and notice what I do, I'm going to do a little bit more. I'm going to work a little bit harder and step my game up a little bit more. I might be the first one to come or the last one to leave, but I'll make sure that I'm the one who gets noticed by working a little bit more. This is how we draw near to anybody. This is how it works. If I want your attention and if I want an increased relationship with you, I'm going to put my best foot forward. I'm going to step up with my best effort. I'm going to give it my best energy. I'm going to think about it at home when I lie down. I'm just going to always be on the game and thinking about how I impress. The problem comes when we translate that into faith. And the problem comes when we translate that into a relationship with God. In other words, if I come to God and say, God, I want to kind of impress you a little bit with by putting my best foot forward, he's like, hey, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? That's a nice foot you have. But remind me where you were when I told the oceans where to stop. All right, all right, all right. See, if I come to God, if I come to faith, the same way I approach any other part of my life where I want to be noticed or I want to develop a growing relationship, what ends up happening is that I end up putting, if you will, a burden upon myself and upon people around me to reduce my relationship with God to following a moral code of conduct. In other words, I will correlate my relationship with God with how moral I am. In other words, the way to impress God, because this is certainly the way to impress a girl or a guy or my boss or my whatever, the way to impress them is to do the right things all the time. Be consistent, be faithful, be good. So the way to impress God would certainly be the same thing, right? Always listen to the right stuff. Always wear the right things. Always do this with my money. Do this with my spouse. Do this with my person I'm dating. Do this with my career. Like, I've just got to kind of line it, line it up. But over time, what that does for us is it reduces our relationship with God, our nearness to him. It correlates that with adherence to a moral code. So, for example... Um, we have things such as, uh, if you go back in our history as a church, Paradise Mennonite Church, 
And some of you were here for this. When we used to be called Paradise Mennonite Church, there was a, uh, uh, several documents that came out. One of them essentially said, you know, we, we're not allowed to have TVs in our homes. Right? Like the spiritual thing, if you want to be a, a fully devoted follower of Christ, reject the TVs. Right? If you've been here long enough, you remember that. That was the deal. Now we have a TV in the lobby when you walk into the church. What's up? Like, have we gone off the rails on this thing? Or is it a normal thing for people throughout the generations to add regulations to life to try to help you know how to draw near to God? And is there a better way? There's a better way. And I want to take you to it because I need to go to it in the book of Hebrews. And we're going to be in chapter 7 this morning. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 to 28 is where we're going to land. So if you don't have a Bible with you, by the way, I invite you to grab a pew. A, a That's a combination of a Bible and a pew. It's a pew. <clears throat> grab a Bible in the pew around you. That kind of rhymed. How about that? Grab a Bible in the pew around you. Um, and by the way, if you don't own one that's our gift to you, we'd be glad to have you take that Bible with you because we believe in the Scriptures, okay? We believe in the truth of the Word of God. We want you to see that what we're saying we just don't make up uh, and it's just not, it's not something uh, fictional here. Uh, the book of Hebrews is in the, the right third of your Bible in the New Testament. And Hebrews chapter 7 is where we're going to be hanging out this morning. This um, will take us back in time to a period of Old Testament um, history and priesthood. Uh, there's going to be some uh, old language in here, and we're going to work through that and, and see, again, how we can draw near to God and what we can learn from that. I'm going to pause throughout um, this section and make a few comments to try to help bring some clarity to what we are reading, all right? Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. He writes, If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the law was given to the people, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. Okay, we're starting deep, we're starting quick, we're starting deep. Check out where he begins. If perfection... This is the starting point. If perfection could have been attained on the basis of the law through the Levitical priesthood, why was there still a need for another priest to come? Here's what he's saying. If in keeping the law for the Old Testament nation of Israel, if the Old Testament nation of Israel could have kept the law perfectly, if it was possible to do that, why was there a need for another priest ever to come? The hypothetical answer to the hypothetical question is, Perfection is never going to be possible through adherence to a moral code of conduct. Like, I can never be good enough to keep God's law. I can never reach the perfect. Okay, he's saying, this is where I'm starting. If perfection would have been possible, why was there a need for another priest to come? Not in the order of Aaron. Verse 12. For when there's a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. In other words, the priests would essentially interpret and, and enforce the law for the people. New priest, new emphases in the law. Now, here's the, the big deal. Not only, when a priest, not only was Jesus a different priest, he was also a priest from a different tribe, and that's a game changer. Look at verse 13. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. 
That's a big deal. We do not have Jesus coming from the Levitical priesthood line. The normal line in which a priest would come, Jesus doesn't come there. This is a change. This is a big deal. This is a game changer for the nation of Israel to process this reality. Who should come in line? Someone in the Levitical line should be the priest. Jesus is not in that line. This serves as a big uh, marker in their mind. Verse 14, For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears. Verse 16, one who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. In other words, Jesus is a priest not because his daddy was a priest and his great-granddaddy was a priest, He's a priest, not because of lineage. He's a priest because of an indestructible life. Like, no one can ever kill Jesus. He's going to be around. Therefore, he has the right and the claim. And here's what that means for the nation of Israel. New priest, new covenant. Now, if you don't have much Bible background, that's totally fine. Let me give you a really brief Bible background thing on how the people in the Old Testament related to Jesus, related to God. They related to God through a covenant, primarily we call the Mosaic Covenant. Okay? The Mosaic Covenant was a covenant or a way of relating to God that God laid out to his people. And really, really broadly, the covenant was, if you obey, you'll be blessed. And if you disobey, you'll be cursed. It's simple. Let me lay out the rules for you, what to follow to be blessed, and the rules of what, what to avoid. We read a lot of those rules in the Old Testament. If you ever find someone who goes through the Bible in a year... They get lost in all that stuff. They're like, wait, I can't eat shellfish? I can't eat shellfish? What, half-hooved, whatever? Like, I'm confused. Welcome to Mosaic Covenant. Okay, like, what am I supposed to do? The priests in the Levitical line would enforce the Mosaic Covenant. We're going to enforce the way that we should relate to God. When a priest comes outside of the Levitical line, what do we do with the Mosaic Covenant? Like, what? Can I eat shellfish now? Like, new priest, new rules, what do, I, what do I do? And Jesus comes, new priest, new line, new way of relating to God. And if you're a believer in this time, you're tracking and you're like, this is strange. This is a big deal. This, this is a game changer. Jesus is a priest from a different line, a new and better way to relate. Look at verse 18. The former regulation, read Mosaic Covenant, is set aside because it was, look at those words, I want to do a little bit of audience participation this time, all right? So you're going to read those words with me. I got, I got three words that go together, the middle word is and, all right? So we're going to say it again. You're going to help me out here, ready? The formula regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. All right, let's do that with passion this time, all right? The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. All right. Um, how many of you have ever memorized a Bible verse? How many of you have ever memorized Hebrews seven eighteen? I would encourage you to memorize this verse. Maybe you just did this morning. We, we usually memorize verses that show up on calendars and Hallmark cards, and I get all that. I know why that is. But 
This is a really big verse. This is a really big verse, and I would love for you to memorize this verse. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. The former regulation was set aside because it was weak and useless. All right, now, because this is so important to me, I'm going to risk um, cheesiness for a minute, but I don't care because I want you to remember this verse like you, hopefully you'll never forget it. Um, have you ever been to a Philly um, sports team game? The Phillies, Sixers, Eagles, Flyers, whatever. Okay, how many of you have ever seen them on TV? How many of you know what the reputation of Philly fans is? Okay. We all, ooh, yeah, okay. So when the bad guys come out to play, the good guys, right, which depends on how the Phillies are doing or whatever. Anyway, when the other team comes out to play uh, the, the home team, what do Philly fans do? Not like that. Come on, for real. What are... <laughs> all right. So I'm going to read this. I'm going to read this verse. And what I want you to do is I want you to boo lustily like the enemy has just shown up. Now, I'm serious now, all right? I need, but I need you to come from your soul with this thing like we're in a championship game because this is a big deal about the former regulation. But I need you to boo the former regulation. Can we do that? Here we go. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. That's awesome. I hope you never forget that verse ever. The former regulation was set aside. It was weak and useless. Powerful verse. For, verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. The morality that we want to put on top of our faith is weak. It's weak and useless. Don't come at me with TV guidelines. Don't come at me with guidelines for how I should wake up and what I should put on. Don't come at me with that stuff if you want me to relate to God. It is weak and useless. This is verse 18. For the law made nothing perfect. The law was never intended to make anything perfect. We can't make it perfect by getting all the laws and getting all the things right. It's just never going to happen. And here we go. We finish it in verse 19. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Here's the question. How do I draw near to God? Here it is. By a better hope in Jesus Christ. You will never, ever, ever draw near to God by keeping the law. You will never draw near to God by doing everything right. That is not how it works. That is weak and useless. You just memorize that verse. Don't ever forget it. Don't ever, it is weak and useless. Don't come with that. A better hope is introduced. And it is by this hope that we draw near to God. How do I draw near to God? A better hope, a better covenant, a new way in which we come. Verse 20 continues. It is not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And check out verse 22. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. This is a new way to relate. That old Mosaic stuff, that is not for now. The Mosaic covenant has been replaced by a priest of a different line. New law, change, it is over. Now give me something new. A better hope has come. Through him a new covenant, a new way to relate to God has come for all those who believe. 
Jesus is a high priest who never dies. He's just never going to go away. Check out verses 23 on down. There have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but Jesus lives forever. He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. You can't actually imagine Jesus in prayer for you forever. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are, what? Weak. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak. Those people who make the laws, enforce the laws, spirituality, weak, weak, weak. But the oath which came after the law appointed the Son, who has been made, in contrast to weak, has been made perfect. Forever. Forever. Why does the author have to drive into this? Why does he have to drive into this? And here's why. Let me tell you why. People have always, always had a tendency to correlate nearness to God with keeping a moral code of conduct. People have always had a tendency, always had a tendency to correlate nearness to God with keeping a moral code of conduct. People have always, historically, always generationally struggled and correlated nearness to God with keeping a moral code of conduct. Don't you wrestle with this? I will tell you right here, I do. The feeling of the more obedient I am, the more consistent I am, the more faithful I am, the more whatever I am, then the nearer to God I feel. But the nearer to God I'm not. That's not how I relate to God. I'm not saved by grace and live by works, right? Like the gospel impacts my life, not just my salvation, right? Like if I'm saved by grace, I live by grace. My nearness to God cannot be contingent upon keeping a moral code of conduct. This worldview, we call this in one word, we call this moralism. Moralism is reducing my relationship to God to keeping a Christian code of conduct. Reducing our Christian experience to that. Saying it's simply about keeping the law. One of my friends in the pastorate um, said, used a phrase to me the other couple years ago. He said, I'm a recovering fundamentalist. His point was he had grown up in a religious tradition that was very religiously traditional. Do's and don'ts, very Mosaic Covenant-like. Do, do this, don't do that. Do, do this, don't do that. The more you do and the less you don't, the better you are, the closer you are to God. At least the closer you are to us. And aren't we all close to God after all? We're covering fundamentally. Moralism is a, is a dangerous thing. Moralism does something dangerous. Let me put it this way. Moralism impacts me, first of all. Moralism impacts me. Moralism impacts me by making me God. Because if I can control how near I am to God by what I do, you better believe I'm going to try to pull the right strings and not pull the wrong ones. I become my own Savior in a moralistic worldview. I don't need Jesus, truthfully. Why would I need him? I just need to do the right things and listen, watch, obey, whatever, do the right things, and I'm going to be fine. I guess moralism impacts me deeply, and it pulls me far from the gospel. I don't need that new 
priest. I'm good enough. Like I, I'll just get it. Moralism deeply impacts me. And my relationship with God. In a moralistic worldview, I begin to see God as like my high school principal. The rule enforcer. The one who you don't really want to be called to the office for unless you know it's for some kind of awesome thing. Otherwise, you don't really want to go there. When he walks down the hall or she walks down the hall, there's a, almost like a police presence there of power, in control, in charge, rule enforcer. You keep the rules, you're fine. I'll even smile at you. But no, if you step to the right or the left, I'm coming to see you. You're going to come to see me. There isn't joy and life and vitality in this Christian experience. There's a rule enforcer. That's, that's my relationship with God. And it also impacts my relationship with others. See, when I have a moralistic worldview, my relationship with others is very simple this way. As long as you do the things that we do, man, you're in. And you need to, or you're out. And so that, what that does over time for a generation of people, for a group of people, it puts people who believe and act a certain way over here, and all those who don't over here. And what the people over here will say is, you're welcome to be part of us, just come on over. Like, doors are open, come on over. The problem with that is the gospel says, hey, you go on over, church. Church, go on over. Go, 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 go and make you know, disciples of all nations. Teaching them, go and, and do that. Like You be the ones to move, don't have them come. And so it impacts deeply my relationship with others, deeply. There's a story that's told in the New Testament um, book of Acts um, that is a very profound story that... Um, that deeply shapes how I see the church and how the church um, rotates around this issue of moralism. This issue of moralism has been a struggle for people for generation upon generation upon generation. In the book of Acts, and you don't need to turn there now, but just I'm telling you where it is so you can look it up and read it later if, if you want to. But in Acts chapter 15, there's an account that I'm going to walk through with you here briefly to help you see what happens early on with this whole issue of moralism. In Acts chapter 15 and verse 1, here's what we read about um, a growing church in this time, this era, certain people had come down, where it came down from Judea to Antioch, and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Does it sound familiar? New believers come into faith. They're Gentile. They don't have Jewish background. And people are telling them, unless you get in line with the Mosaic covenant, you cannot be saved. The author of Hebrews has just argued there's a new priest, a new line, a new way to relate to God. Mosaic covenant's off. Here we go. So here's the issue. If you become a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to take on the history and the traditions of the people in the past. Now, verse 2 goes on this way. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them, and rightly so. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. Paul and Barnabas, great missionaries of the time, were traveling around the known world sharing the gospel. People were responding. Gentiles were responding. And some were like, look at all these Gentiles responding. That's great as long as they begin to look like us. Like they've got to carry our tradition. What else is there? Paul and Barnabas were like, wait, we don't, that doesn't sound like, that's not gospel. That sounds off, but the people are pushing. And so Paul and Barnabas are appointed to go to Jerusalem to talk to them about what to do. And so they arrive in Jerusalem, there becomes a gathering of people gathered in Jerusalem. And in chapter 15, verse 5, we read, here's what happens, kind of the setup for it all. Then some of the believers who belong, look at this sentence, 
The believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, okay, we have Pharisees who are believers, all right, stood up and said, Boom, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. How many of you have ever watched a British Parliament in action? Anyone ever see British Parliament in action? Like, not live, but on TV or whatever, movies even? Okay, about four of you. Good, appreciate that support. Let me try another line of thinking here. What happens, I'll just tell you what happens, all right? In, in, in a British type parliament, there's very active and live parliamentary discussion. Like, someone will stand up and say something, here's my position, you know, we should only wash dogs on Thursday. And then, you know, he gets in, all of a sudden, like, conversation breaks out live across all the aisles. You can't understand anything that's going on, very live. And then somebody else stands up and says, no, Wednesday we should all wash dogs, whatever. Okay? The point is very live discussion. I imagine the Jerusalem meeting like this is almost like that. I wasn't there, maybe I'm making it up, I don't know. But there's a lot of people, a lot of discussion that's going on. And so immediately, kind of stepping right up into this, the Pharisees, the Christians who are from the party of Pharisees, they're laying out their position. Here we go. The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Now, Peter is there. Peter's story is a very interesting story. Peter was very unwilling to see Gentiles come. Peter, as a Jew, he had to be pushed by God out the door through a dream and kind of drop kicked out and go out there and tell the Gentiles about the hope of the gospel. And Peter stands up. He draws, let me have your attention, hold attention. And he says to them, Brothers, don't you remember? It was God's choice through my lips to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. And God, showing no um, concern between Jew or Gentile, rolled out the Holy Spirit to both. The Holy Spirit was evident, was a gift to both Gentile and Jew, showing no distinction between either one. And don't you remember, this was God's choice. It wasn't even mine. God did this. And so Peter's conclusion in this discussion is this. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Big moment. Right on the heels of him, Paul and Barnabas then, they're still there and they get up. They, they get up and they kind of, they want to show their slides and, and talk about their missionary experience. They get up and they, they, they recount all of what happened, all the miracles that happened when they shared the gospel and all the Gentiles who came to faith. After Paul and Barnabas are done, there's more discussion that goes on and finally, somebody brings it to closure. And the person who brings it to closure is James, the brother of Jesus. Again, very compelling piece. James, the half-brother of Jesus, brings it to closure with a statement that is so profound that if I could have my way, if I could say, if there's one statement that would epitomize what I hope the legacy of Grace Point Church will be, it will be Acts 15, 19, what James gets up to say in the middle of this argument. Because what he says rockets through time and lands here and hits us so deeply. And here's what he says. 
It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. It is my judgment that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. The gospel alone. Without morality on top, without circumcision on top, without a code of conduct on top, without a requirement for attendance on top, or listening on top, or watching on top, or dressing on top, or speaking, without a requirement for any moral code of conduct. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. In other words, make it easy. What is easy? The grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Incredibly easy and incredibly messy. Wait, wait, so what are, you, what are you saying? We can dress like anything, we can say whatever, we can do... Uh, it is my judgment that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Our relationship to God, our nearness to God, is not correlated to a religious system or to a code of conduct. And the dangerous appeal of moralism is to say, the more in line you get with externals, the closer to God you are going to be. Just line that baby up and you're good to go. And the gospel sends a different message. That Jesus as the high priest came, set up a new covenant, so the Mosaic covenant is gone. It's over. It's over. May the legacy be that we never make it difficult for people to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Even Christians who are Pharisees, who wanted to make circumcision a requirement, you got to have this before you enter the community. Nope. James says, nope. You got to do this before you enter the community. No. It's gospel, like it's grace. And so my hope for us deeply is that like, I, don't, I don't care if you have saved enough through great biblical stewardship that you can fund 1,400 retirement accounts. I don't, I don't care if you have never even thought a curse word since you've been five, okay, since you learned what they were. I don't care if you've been so pure that you haven't even thought a bad thought since you were whatever in high school or whatever, like... It, it doesn't matter. Like The best of what we can do, the best of what we can offer, is what verse 18 of chapter 7 says. It is weak and useless, which is why I want you to memorize that, which is why I want you to remember the one time you booed in church, at least out externally. Because I want you to remember that you're booing the regulation. You're booing what's weak and useless which is the very best of our effort to get closer to God. The very best of what we can offer is not going to draw us near to God. The grace of the gospel has set a new covenant, a new way that we will not make it difficult for all to experience what we have experienced. And so it's my hope, yes, 
It's my desire, yes, that individually for us and corporately as a church body, that we will never make it difficult, ever, for people to come to see Jesus, the one who established a new covenant and through whom we draw near to God. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, we are people who are drawn, sometimes almost without reason and understanding, drawn to religion, and drawn to rules that set up our lives in order with clarity and precision, to know what's right and wrong and what's ethical and unethical, to remove the tension and to bring an ease of learning, to remove the, the gray and live in the black and white, to figure out what end is up and what end is down. And I understand all that. Father, there's something very messy about the gospel and very disconcerting, very unsettling, very unsettling about the depth of the grace of the gospel. There's something satisfying and controlling and easy about moralism. Something that settles me in to a life that's predictable. And so I pray for us as a church body, as people, that we wouldn't settle into that ever. That we really would remember the old regulation. It's weak and useless. May we never make it difficult. And Father, in that, that may be difficult then for us. For those of us who have a background in church, those of us who have a background in how things have been done, those of us like the Pharisees who are believers, said this is the way things have always been done. People are circumcised according to the law. For those of us who have that background of the way things have always been done, grant us grace and wisdom and courage to live out the natural implications of the gospel and the far reaches of it in our own lives, in our community right here. And Father, may this place, may this church, if nothing else, be a place where people find it easy to come to see Jesus, to come to know the grace of the gospel without the strings attached. Help us to fight the draw of moralism to remember that you're a good and gracious God. Father, take this life that we have. Let it be given over to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.